My father disappeared while hunting in the Bulgarian mountains. I now know what caused it. Written by Mr. Pagan665 I've been hunting ever since I could remember. I think my first experience was with my father at the age of seven, where we went on a camping trip near a forested region of the mountain range of Stara Polina. It is a long chain of mountains that cut through the middle of the Bulgarian land. We were hunting wild boar and elk. It was the middle of September and the soil was slightly dampened from a heavy downpour that had lasted about three days. I remember staying in a small hunting hut that my father and some of his friends used to own. It was surrounded by pines and bushes that bloomed with berries in the spring and summer. We used to go there to hunt for a whole weekend and then come back with either a nice prize or empty-handed. But whatever the prize was, the ultimate one was the experience. After my dad's disappearance, however, hunting had become less frequent. I remember clearly the last time that I ever saw him. It was December and I saw him cleaning his rifle and preparing his stuff at the kitchen table. With his back turned to me, I heard his warm voice in that chilly morning. Are you sure you cannot come with me, Ivan? He asked. There was a slight hopefulness in his words as if he expected an answer that would fill him with joy that day. Dad, I'm sorry, but I can't this weekend. I need to study for my exam this Monday and I'll be leaving this Sunday morning to go back to the capital. But don't worry. This semester is almost at its end and I'll be back next week for almost a month for the winter break. And then we can do whatever you want. I exclaimed that day. He sighed and turned around to face me. He gave me a hug and then went and hugged my mom and kissed her on her forehead. All right now, I'll be going. I'll text you when I'm at the cabin. I'll see you guys in two days. He stepped outside and a cold breeze came in, making me shiver. I saw his back turn with the rifle on his shoulder, as if he were a soldier leaving home. That day, we received his text a couple of hours later, and after some random text of things he saw and almost hit, and some other small chats like how the weather was, the temperature, and etc. He was never a man of typing of his whereabouts, though. A couple of years back, he would simply leave and wouldn't tell anyone anything. After my mom's constant nagging, of course, he did sort of develop a habit of texting, especially when he went out hunting. Saturday rolled around and he sent us a good morning text. Following that, he would go ice fishing in a nearby lake. Me and my mom were sort of puzzled, as he never usually goes fishing. But my father has always been a fan of trying something new for a change. There was this instance once where he went on a hunting trip using a bow and arrow. He knew he wasn't good with archery, but he simply wanted to see, and I quote, how the ancient people did it, and if they did, I can too. Hours had passed and we didn't receive any text. Afternoon rolled around and my mother did begin to become worried. She called him and sent him maybe 10 to 15 messages until he finally responded. Hey dear, everything is fine. I'm fine. My battery died when I was coming back. 
The song of the mountain sat me entranced, and I didn't know it was turned off. Can we speak later? I need to sleep. My mother was furious, but she knew she couldn't do anything, so she let it be. And then night came, and no texts, no phone calls. We began to get worried again, but knowing our father, perhaps, he might be doing something and completely forgot that he had to send us anything. Hours simply passed. I've stayed up almost all night, almost for a text, but it never came. There was no need to worry, I said to myself. It was almost Sunday morning, and he would be here by nine, just like usual. But he never came back that morning. It was a colder that day. I remember it very clearly. My mother and I were looking at our phones every passing hour, waiting for a response to our calls. Afternoon was almost approaching, and the night sky was getting slightly cloudier and darker. My mom by that time had informed the police officers and the park rangers, but they notified her that a search would have to wait till the next day, as of a standard protocol. She protested at first, but there was nothing that could be done. The next day, a search by a local policeman and some park rangers went on the location of the cabin. They informed us that no one was there when they had arrived. However, they did find his belongings and a truck parked nearby. My mother and I were devastated as more days had passed and my father had never returned. Days turned to weeks and weeks to months. The whole town was in shock. It even made it into the news. A man from the town of Lovitch disappeared on a hunting trip near a forested area of the Stara Planina. Him or his body is not yet to be found. Needless to say, the whole month was just a pain for us. My mother was broken, and I, well, I was angry. The whole Christmas and New Year's were filled with darkness for me. No laughter, nothing was the same, and having the occasional fake sad look of everyone around me. I know my father. He wouldn't just get lost like that or get into danger. Something wasn't right. His last message plagues me to this day, and I want to go there and see for myself. Spring came eventually and most of the snow had melted. I had been informed by a police officer, a friend of a family, that a new search would take place in mid-March, hoping for any remains to be found. But I wasn't sticking around to wait for the police search. All winter, my gut had been telling me that my father is probably dead. But there's something else that just doesn't seem right. One weekend, I decided not to go to my mother. I had instead picked up my hunting and camping gear and left the capital and headed out towards the cabin. I knew the road would be safer this month to drive at least, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't be careful. I left around 9am. The road was long and through forested areas, thus taking more time to reach it. As I drove, I saw the sun shining in the evergreen forest. Its light rays going through the leaves and hitting the leftover snow, making it sparkle and glitter. The spring breeze was sweet, and memories of my father began circling in my mind the more I approached the location. I saw some wildlife springing back to life, deer, rabbits, it was beautiful. 
After about four hours of driving, I finally reached the location of our cabin. Thankfully, I had my spare keys with me and I unlocked the wooden door. The place was cleaned by the police and they had gathered most of my father's belongings and were sent in for investigation. I felt a weird sensation seeing the empty cabin. A haunting one. As I stepped inside, the floor began creaking. Maya was startled by a bunch of birds flapping their wings and exiting the cabin panicking. How on earth did they manage to get in here? I wondered while I tried to catch my breath. Not too much later, I heard a strange sound coming from outside. Faint and distant, traveling along the spring breeze. I went outside and tried to locate the source of this humming. As I made a walk around the cabin, I noticed the possible entry of the birds. The back window of the cabin. The one that is connected to the bathroom was opened. Halfway up to be exact. That's strange. Could the police have left it open? As I stared at the open window, I heard the faint, once indescribable sound again. This time coming from amongst the line of trees a couple of 20 to 30 meters afar from where I stood. The sound was enchanting. It was a song, I remember it. A sweet tune, like a choir sang by women but coming from one source. It sounded sad and lonely yet haunting. Minutes passed but it felt like years. I knew I was hypnotized by this thing. Deep in my core, I think I knew what it was, but the thought, I could not accept it. The haunting tune became more alluring. I felt my feet unwillingly walking me towards the mysterious tune as I moved towards the tree line. I faintly remember a figure standing amongst the tree trunks. Pale white hands seemed to grasp the trunk and a long white gown could be seen partially hidden from behind. A face of a young woman, puffy cheeks and long black hair illuminated by the sun rays. I heard a whisper, a soft, angelic voice calling to me. And as I almost came halfway to meet her, my phone began to ring. The loud music made me stutter. My heart began pounding fast as if you were awakened in the middle of night from a slumber to the sound of an unexpected alarm. It was my mother. I quickly took a glance towards the direction of the woman. She was nowhere to be found. No voice and no sound were heard now. Only the trees and the birds chirping and my ringtone breaking the forest sounds. Ivan, hey, I wanted to ask if you were coming by this weekend. I was still trembling, and with a stutter in my voice, I responded positively. I will be, mother. Later this day, I just had some work that I had to do. Okay, I'll talk to you later then. I love you. A small tear rolled down my eye. I've never felt the sensation of warmth for a long time. I love you too, mother. See you soon. After I closed the phone, I turned around to look at the cabin one more time. I was frozen in place at what I saw. It was her again, but this time, she stood there motionless, humming in a low tune. Her limbs looked skeletal like a corpse, and her long black hair covered her bowed face as she stared at her feet. Who are you? What are you doing here? I yelled, but the woman didn't pay any attention to me. 
this didn't feel right. I remember taking my rifle and loading it and pointing it at her. And that's when I saw it. Its limbs twitched and sounds of broken bones were moving and being placed back into a disgusting formation. She became taller, more skeletal looking, like something out of a horror film. The long black hair was pulled back as her skull seemed to morph into a long canine shape. Its skin was a ghostly pale and wrinkly like a preserved mummy. And its hollow eyes were a faint blue light emitted. They were focused on me. The hunter had become the prey. It opened its long mouth and gnarled, making its thick saliva ooze like a mad dog. I was frozen from fear, and I knew that it smelled it or sensed it. My legs began to shake and my heart was racing. I knew that I had to do something faster, I would be a goner. I took a quick glimpse at my car that was parked behind the horrifying beast in the cabin, situated almost next to it. As I was making my plan, I saw it slowly crawl on its four wicked limbs and slowly make its way towards me, while licking its gnarly lips and making noises beyond of human comprehension. And then it talked, in a voice that made my heart sink, a voice that I haven't heard for months. Now, Ivan, why don't you take a listen to the sound of nature? I was baffled beyond belief. Dad? I felt my tears beginning to form as the creature took one big step closing the distance. Now be a good son and come here. I knew this thing wasn't my father, but the voice, I haven't heard it in so long. It made me wanting to actually come closer, but I knew this would be a bad decision. I made a step back. I mastered all of my leftover sanity and aimed my gun and fired at the wicked beast. I remember the sound that it made. To this day, it makes me still anxious. It didn't scream or screech like an animal, but like a human. He had kept my father's voice while I shot it. And to me, it sounded just like I had killed him. It was unbearable. It moved like it was about to charge. I saw its eyes getting visibly angry and filled with rage. And then it lunged towards my direction and for once, I felt my body responding to my command. I dodged on its left and began running as fast as I could towards the car. I heard its footsteps approaching and its gnarly mimicked voice cursing and yelling my name. With haste, I opened the door and locked it, but the creature wouldn't have it. It face-planted on my side window and began scratching it while still yelling in my dad's voice. Come on, Ivan. Don't leave your old man alone again. Come here. I pressed on the gas pedal and began driving off like a maniac. I could hear its last sound, a cry of pain as the tires ran over one of its limbs, causing it to possibly break. As I drove, I could hear its voice in the distance. Ivan! While turning from a man to an animal, an abomination of an animal that is, I've never told anyone this, not even my family, but after some thought and research on the matter, I think I know what had killed my father, and what almost killed me. In Bulgarian folklore, we have a creature named the Samadivas. They are creatures similar to sirens. They are said to be transforming into beautiful women dressed in white gowns, 
to lure men into their demise. Some say they transform into your loved ones or your friends, and by using their angelic voice and charm, they hypnotize you, luring you to your possible death. They are often seen or heard near rivers, lakes, and mountains, which is in abundance in Bulgaria. So please, if you ever wish to visit or hunt in the Bulgarian forest, make sure when you come across a woman in white, or anyone you might not know that should not be there at that moment, make sure you leave immediately, or else you might end up like my father. I was sent to receive a distress call from Watchtower 1. What I've seen there has haunted me for life. Written by Prox Warp. The Deepwater Horizon was one of the biggest man-made disasters in the world, holding the infamous title for being the largest environmental disaster in the history of the United States. Ever since its fatal explosion in the Gulf of Mexico, 41 miles offshore from civilization, what they don't tell you is that the Deepwater Horizon caught in one of the worst disasters the world has seen wasn't the only one like many others recorded in the documents and files known to the press and public. For the highly classified and non-disclosure agreements that I've signed, I am expected not to be revealing this publicly. Unfortunately for me, I do not have much time left in this world. Recently, I have been diagnosed with stage 3 lung cancer from specialists and doctors alike. With the excessive heavy smoking that I had picked up as a stress reliever to get away from the memories and nightmares that had been plaguing me ever since that danged search and rescue operation to Watchtower 1. Speaking of which, Watchtower 1 wasn't the original name for the oil rig as they had changed its name several times to avoid whistleblowers. As such, I unfortunately cannot disclose the true identity of the facility to avoid those who poke their noses into the operation that I had longed and yearned to forget. This is purely my recounting a guilt reliever to get the weighing matters off my chest before I leave this godforsaken world for good. You see, on November 4th, 2018, I joined the CDC, also known as the Centers for Disease Control, with the mindset and pretext that I would be of aid in curing diseases, giving medical attention and relaying medical supplies to those who are living in disease-ridden third-world countries. For the first two years, that was the case, paving my way through college and earning my biomedicine degree after the army. Naturally, the CDC seemed like a good job offer to take up, with it being the apex of healthcare professions after my graduation. When they had accepted my job application, I was thrilled to say the least. Nonetheless, I would not be working for them as a standard health scientist. During which, I was informed that a field in the CDC was lacking in manpower and workers, demanding that if I were to take up the job offer, I would be part of a security task force team, specializing in crucial search and rescue missions and escort of personnel from the CDC and civilians alike. It wasn't the kind of work that I had in mind when I joined the CDC, but it was a high-paying job for a beginner like me at the time, so I just thought that it seemed like a good job offer. 
with the encompassing fact that I had been training and serving in the military, so I was pretty well suited for the job. The third field assignment that I had received earlier came with skepticism, codenamed Operation Hammerdown. Alongside with my team of five personnel in total, consisting of four security officers and me, was supposed to receive a distress call coming from an offshore deep water oil drilling rig, aka known as Watchtower 1, at Redacted in the Atlantic Ocean, approximately 39 miles off the coast of Data Expunged, to rescue and secure two geneticists and the rest of the rig personnel who were on board at the rig at the time of a seemingly aggressive encounter with unresponsive, mutilated figures coming on board the platform from the vessel that has been seen to have fatal injuries covering the entirety of their bodies, exhibiting rabid and hostile behavior in terms of jerky and shuffling motions towards the crew. Those who had tried to establish physical contact with the figures have been seen to also exhibit sudden violent and aggressive tendencies within a couple of minutes and therefore have been quarantined and separated from the rest of the crew on board. The massive scientific research vessel had coincidentally crashed into the drilling rig during a hurricane-like storm in the sea at 10pm and had gotten stuck and lodged into the pillars as documents and recorded information about the call states. The distress call came in at about 12am as the connection had abruptly halted from unknown reasons possibly from the storm itself. Gearing up my shit equipment and loading a fresh magazine into the M4 carbine, I strapped and tightened the bulky black-tinted gas mask around my face as I donned a heavy yellow rubber hazmat suit and a tactical vest at the outside, strapping considerable lengths of heavy-duty duct tape around my wrist and legs and sealing them up to prevent air from entering and getting out. I exited the decontamination chamber drenched in the cleansing tap water and the heavy downpour of the rain, as the roar of the Black Hawk helicopter greeted me as it resonated throughout the slippery landing pad, with the occasional thunder that boomed in the distance. The rest of the security team waved at me, clad in the same yellow protective suits, sitting in their respective seats. Upon boarding the helicopter, the ground crew outside gave the helicopter one last exterior check before giving an all-clear thumbs up to the pilot and co-pilot, before shutting the metal door in a quick and swift slam, locking it into place. Torrents of raindrops the size of bullets pelted the top and sides of the helicopter vigorously. Sounds of their impact drowned out by the blade of the helicopter as it gradually hovered above the ground before taking off. Call signs, background static, and garbled voices chatted over the communications radio, built into our hazmat suits, as the shaky chopper ride to the oil rig was carried out mostly in silence. Apart from the constant droning of the radio and the howl of the helicopter blades, I thought that our weapons would protect us. I thought that this mission was just a simple extraction operation. I was so wrong. Rudely stirred from my short power nap by the shrill announcement of the pilots implying our arrival, the helicopter shuddered against the force of the unrelenting downpour of rain, stealing a glance at the electronic clock hanging on the wall of the helicopter. It read, in brightly lit red numbers, 3.23am. The exterior window of the helicopter is covered in a thick layer of water, 
As the world outside the helicopter is shrouded in a vast, thick and black void, with nothing except the mesmerizing, wave-stricken ocean for as far as the eye could see, through the dense curtain of rain. The pilot's radio chimed in. Vulture 2-2, platform coming into view. Feed dry in 20 seconds. The surrounding void of darkness engulfing the sea gradually became brighter and brighter. As a massive behemoth of a structure seemingly rising out from the sea came into view outside the blurry water splattered windows. Uh, we have a non-visual status on personnel in the rig. Break. The words came over the radio. Slow and drawn out as the helicopter circled around the brightly lit drilling rig, with a massive, visible black reefer vessel half sunken and stuck into two of the oil platform pillars, causing it to slightly bend and tilt over to an unstable angle. My jaw hung agape as another unsettling image of the rig soon came into view, this time at the landing pad. The offshore helicopter used to transport personnel from the shore to the rig is seen sprawled flat on the landing pad, erect tail dangling over the edge, and the body of the rest of the helicopter torn to shreds with the chopper's blade hanging loosely at its sides. Scratches and damage could be seen visibly on the erect metal bird laying on the pad, as giant, violet waves slam against the concrete pillars of the rig, causing the lights of the infrastructure to flicker each time from the impact. Copy that. Radio check standby. Switch to secure channel. Over, said the co-pilot. The overhead door buzzer sounded as the interior of the helicopter lit up in a dazzling red light. And two of my squad mates, Corporal Jackson and Sergeant Volkers, stood by their seats with assault rifles strapped tightly to their vests as they simultaneously gripped the handles and heaved both of the adjacent doors open with grunts. Gusts of storm wind and rain whipped around in the interior, as I and the rest of the task force prepared ourselves for insertion. Green light, go, go, go! Thick black fiber ropes dropped down from the top of both helicopter doors, as Corporal Jackson and Sergeant Volkers were the first to grab onto the ropes and slide down. I followed suit after them as the rain violently pelted against my fogged up gas mask, obstructing most of my view. Swiftly sliding down the rope as my boots slammed onto the metal platform, I quickly drew the M4 assault rifle and switched the safety off. As I noticed my other two teammates who were already in position, assault rifles trained on a rusty metal steel door a couple of feet away. Sounds of sliding and boots hitting the wet ground can be heard from behind me. As the other two squad members, Corporal Staples and Specialist Maxian rendezvoused with us, Assault rifles crackling and clicking into place as the whole team filed into combat stance, weapons drawn at the ready. The radio chimed in. Whiskey 3, this is Vulture 2-2 at Bingo Fuel. We're bugging out of here for refuel and resupply. Godspeed. Over. The helicopter hovered above us for a second before rising up and circling the rig for another minute, before soon flying back into the distance the sounds of turning blades quickly disappearing and masked by the incessant pitter-patter of rain and thunder. The surroundings around me were grimly lit by the overhead lights of the rig as a loud, stressed, and groan of the infrastructure echoed throughout its walls and floors. Sarge raised his hand in motion for us to toggle the flashlights on our guns to operational as he took the lead and walked towards the metal door 
with the rest of the team still vigilant and following after him. Approaching the worn down and corroded metal door, we stepped aside and divided ourselves into two sections, each on either opposite side of the door impressed against the grim coated wall, awaiting further instructions. Breathing heavily through the fogged up mask, I could still make out the palpable lingering smell of decay of decades of rusting metal as the platform squeaked noisily under our weight. Sergeant Volkers motioned a countdown with his gloved hand, mouthing the numbers while carrying his rifle in his other hand, as we mentally steeled ourselves for a breach into the facility. Not my mark. Three, two, one, breach. The metal door flew forcefully open on its hinges, with a slight dent in its body from Sergeant's leg kick as we noisily clambered through the doorway. Guns and eyes transfixed on the front as everybody piled into the small corridor, dimly lit with a constant flickering of the overhead lights. Room cleared. The small corridor basked in a yellowish-green hue by the lighting, led to a metal-graded flight of stairs leading downstairs. As we cautiously stepped over the debris-strewn flooring, the sounds of constant dripping of rainwater leaking from the metal walls fading into the background as I followed behind Sergeant Volkers, with the rest of the team trailing in a single file after us. Upon descending down the flight of stairs, we start to notice bloodstains and bloody guts from a possible animal lining across the walls. Upon catching sight of the gruesome scene ahead, one of the team members trailing behind us, Specialist Maxian, bent over and gagged, as he uses his assault rifle as leverage to keep him from falling over. Jesus Christ, what in the world actually happened here? Specialist Maxian remarked through the radio. The distinctive sound of his voice mixed with the fuzz and the white static emitted from through the speakers. Clenching the weapon tightly in my hands, I shone the flashlight attached to the barrel of the gun onto an unlit section in the corridor with the beam of light falling upon a frame of a person dressed in a matching orange reflected tape jacket and pants, lying against the wall. I momentarily stopped in my tracks as I stared in shock at the scene that lay in front of me, dread gripping tightly at my sides. Figure spotted, 11 o'clock, I briefly announced, stepping towards the figure, weapon still drawn and aiming down at it with the barrel flashlight, Advancing forward towards the person, I had noticed that the surrounding walls and floors that he is lying in are coated in a sticky, crimson-red liquid, and the sickly smell of blood growing more and more concentrated, the lingering and oppressive feeling of dread growing more and more densely in the pit of my stomach, the closer that I stopped, the sounds of my boots softly clanking against the floor. The rest of the team stuck behind, guns trained on the body, Sir, are you alright? I kneeled down and gripped his shoulders as I gently shook him. The rifle clutched in my other hand. No response. As I slowly tried to lift up his face, I held one gloved hand against his chin for better support as I repeated my question. Sir, do you... Holy God. I recoiled backwards in disgust and terror letting go from his chin as he limply slumped back forward. Hordes of tiny, wriggling maggots and brownish-red liquid dripping out from his mouth and onto his lap, 
as they wiggled about vigorously in protest to the beam of light that shone upon them. What the hell? What happened to him? Corporal Staples said in disgust through the radio, his expression turning sour, eyes glued upon the dead body lying in the corridor. Sergeant Volkers exchanged glances with Specialist Maxian as he had inspected the dead body, leaning in for a better look. Poor guy, it seems to have already died a long time ago. Most likely one of the workers on board the rig, he said, bending over and picking up a small identification card that slung loosely around the worker's neck, examining it. Let's get moving. We've got business to attend to. After a couple of minutes of making our way to the end of the dimly lit corridor, we came across another huge metal door, this time with an accompanying faded label which read, Cafeteria. I tried the greasy handle as the huge door remained wedged and locked tight. Suddenly, a shrill, feminine ear-piercing scream and animalistic howls could be heard coming from the other side of the door as soon as I had tried to jiggle the handle for the second time. I flinched by instinct as the whole team jolted, weapons trained in the door. But as soon as the chilling screams and howls resonated throughout the corridor, it had stopped as quickly as it had started. Hello, miss. Please respond. We're here to help you. I shouted through the metal, holstering my weapon as I cupped my hand against the door to amplify my voice. My pleas for a verbal response came empty-handed, as the muffled sounds of shuffling feet and slow metal scraping against the floor could be heard from the other side. God, we've got to help her. She might be injured. Corporal Jackson said beside me, stepping forward as he lifted the barrel of his rifle and aimed in the direction of the metal handle. Breach. Four quick and loud gunshots ring out from the muzzle of his barrel as it illuminated the cramped corridor surroundings around us in dazzling bright yellow flashes as sparks flew from the handle itself. The heavy metal door swung wide open after two hard consecutive kicks, and we quickly filed into the pitch black cafeteria through the doorway. Panting as the beams of light from our weapons shook around violently into our hurried states. As we fully composed ourselves and calmed down, the entire cafeteria became eerily quiet and silent, apart from the muffled thunder outside and our breathing through the masks. We scanned our flashlights around in the pitch black room, in search of the source of the screams that came earlier. I was still breathing heavily through my mask, the steam from my breathing quickly blocking and limiting my view from the eye holes. The whole room was deathly silent for a full minute, with nobody saying a word with bated breath. We stood in our positions and used the narrow beam of our flashlights to scan around and illuminate the surroundings as the light fell over a scene of broken tables, twisted metal chairs, and shattered coffee mugs. Suddenly, a quick dozen flashes of motions were caught in the corner of my vision as I jerked around with my flashlight, trying to get a glimpse of whatever was in the same room as us. The beam of my flashlight shone around wildly as I shone the light from one spot to another where I had last seen the movements. Hello, is anybody that... Specialist Maxian announced loudly into the room, but before he could finish the sentence, his entire body was abruptly caught by a darting figure lunging onto him from behind and propelling both of their bodies forward into the darkness, causing him to drop his M4 assault rifle onto the floor and killing the flashlight from the gun. 
Help me. I can't see. Get it off of me. His cries for help screeched in the pitch black distance as suddenly deafening sprays of gunfire erupted from my right. As another one of my fellow teammates, Corporal Jackson, opened fire blindly in the general direction of a sudden figure that had dashed past his beam of light. Contact, he quickly yelled, as Sergeant Fulkers and Corporal Staples started wildly opening fire as well, on several other figures that had quickly run past their lights, causing the entire cafeteria to momentarily light up in a blinding mixture of yellow and white flashes. Time seems to crawl to a halt as I blanked out in the heat of the moment, the gunfire flashes irritating the attacking figures as I caught a glimpse of their misshapen, malformed bodies, similar to that of a burn victim, with brownish-red spittle flying out from their jaw that hung at an unnatural angle. What are we fighting? Corporal Staples yelled in panic while blindly shooting, as his entire body was abruptly grabbed onto and yanked forward into the darkness. His desperate screams for help, muffled in the deafening background gunfire. Snap out of it. We've got to get the hell out of here. Sergeant Fulkers yelled from the left, as he started sprinting back towards the metal door, with Corporal Jackson hot on his heels, turning around for the last time and firing back into the inhuman screeches and howls of the figures. There I stood, both feet frozen to the ground in shock and fear from the events that had unfolded right in front of my eyes as the gruff command from the sergeant snapped me out of my day's trance. I considered helping my other two teammates for a second, before silently uttering an apology, and I ran after Jackson and the sergeant, back through the metal doorway. Howls and angry, animalistic screams bounced off the corridor, as the huge metal door vibrated and held under the bashes and attacks that came from the other side. I was on my knees, panting and breathless as I clutched the rifle, my hands trembling in terror. Sergeant Volkers held the door shut along with Corporal Jackson, as the unrelenting bashing from the other side of the door kept up with their siege to break in. The three of us knew what had to be done next was inevitable, as the bashing and thumping of the door started to grow stronger and louder by the second. Sergeant Volkers was the first to break the silence between the three of us as he handed me his dog tag solemnly. Do me a favor. Find those geneticists and get the heck out of this place. I'll hold these guys off. Hurry. Corporal Jackson protested as he tried to change the sergeant's mind from his sacrifice attempt. The metal door inched forward in a desperate push to break in, as Sergeant Volker shook his head and slammed it back into place with a loud grunt. He produced two handheld fragmentation grenades from his vest, as he clutched one in both hands. There's no time. Either you had wanted those two other deaths earlier to be in vain, or the whole team. Go now, that's an order. The howls in the background faded and mixed into the howling of the wind, as we passed the previous body lying against the wall in a running sprint and climbed the metal stairs, reaching back under the topside in mere minutes. Slamming the metal door shut behind us, a distant rumble of explosion resonated and echoed throughout the rig, as the entire platform started to gently shake seconds after the blast. No! Corporal Jackson yelled furiously through the suit, as he kicked the oxidized metal wall beside us, causing it to slightly dent in from the impact. Their deaths could have been prevented. We might have come up with something else if it wasn't for my idea to breach in. 
No, no, you did the right thing in trying to save whoever that was behind the door. That was the original mission for the entire team. I tried to assure and emphasize with him, as the sudden loud crack on the onboard PA system reminded both of us that the mission wasn't over just yet. Hello, is this the rescue team? We're currently holed up and trapped in the control room. There's a couple of those things trying to break in. Upon hearing the announcement from the system, Corporal Jackson and I glanced at each other, exchanging subtle nods before taking off jogging towards a metal doorway further down the platform, this time with a directory map nailed to its sides with faded description labels. I briefly scanned over and examined the directory with my gloved fingers, as it unconsciously trailed down and pointed to a small location on the map which had an accompanying label that read, Control Room. Over there, Corporal Jackson exclaimed, catching my attention as he motioned his fingers to point in the direction of a woman clad in a white lab coat, waving at us from a window situated in a sizable second-story tower. As we hastily made our way to the giant platform tower, the radio built into both of our units suddenly burst to life, beeping in a quick and rhythmic manner. Whiskey 3, Whiskey 3, this is Vulture 2-2 on maximum fuel. We'll be on station for evac in ETA 10 minutes. Out. I sighed in sheer relief as Corporal Jackson grinned from the inside of his mask. As we had reached a smashed and warped metal door leading into the tower. I'll take the lead. Watch my six. He muttered as we ascended a spiraling graded stairwell. With remnants of bloodstains and tiny pieces of decomposing flesh littering the metal. Both floor and walls. The distinct sounds of banging, blood-curdling screaming and howling soon came into focus as we neared the top of the stairwell, as I tightened the grip on the handle of the rifle. As we rounded the corner in the spiraling stairwell wall, we could make out a couple of figures. Backs turned towards us as they continued their relentless rampage on a metal door, with visible damage and denting on its exterior. The figures, clad in these same working orange uniforms and construction helmets, are seen aggressively and violently bashing their heads into the body of the door, as one is seen repeatedly running into it with his body at full force. Crimson red blood is spilling all over the place and white tips of ribcage bones protruding from his back, as he continued with the act as if nothing had happened, while screaming and howling frantically. What the hell? Corporal Jackson whispered, as the figures abruptly stopped in their actions and spun around faster than we could react as their dead, glazed-over eyes stared right into us, dilated pupils twitching randomly. Nobody moved for a split second, and as the once-human figures finally registered our presence with them, they started dashing towards us at full speed before we could even react to pull the trigger. In a split second, one of them was closing in on Corporal Jackson, her upper movements jerky and convulsing. I pulled the trigger without thinking of my shock-filled state, the 556 rounds impacting and tearing through her decomposing shoulders and upper head as she was sent barreling through the air and tumbling past Corporal Jackson, rolling down the stairs. Corporal Jackson opened fire on the other figures as they were stopped in their tracks for the hail of bullets and tumbled to the floor, still spasming and gurgling out blood as they slowly succumbed to their fatal injuries. Panting and taking a breather, I cautiously stepped over the dead bodies laying on the floor, riddled with bloodied holes as a small pool of blood emerged from under them, 
as I gave the metal door several loud knocks. Open up, we're with the CDC. I called out, lowering my weapon as I motioned for Corporal Jackson over to me. Sounds of unlocking could be heard from the other side, as the door slowly inched open, leaving a tiny gap. As an eye peeked out and examined me and Corporal Jackson before swinging wide open, revealing a dark-haired female scientist dressed in a blood-stained lab coat, her hair ruffled and disheveled. Behind her sat a rig worker, clad in the same dirty orange uniform, and looking quite rather exhausted. Thank God you guys had finally arrived. We had hunkered down here in the control room when the rig went into lockdown. My other partner went out and made the distress call at the comms room, but he hasn't returned since. Corporal Jackson shot me a pitiful glance, as we both knew that deep down he was already dead. You're the working geneticist scientist, right? I curiously inquired as she confirmed the statement by nodding her head. The evac helicopter should be here anytime soon to get you guys out. We have... My words were quickly muffled out by a roar of a colossal explosion, resounding and bounding off the walls, as the entire control room shook violently, throwing us off our feet. Mugs, keyboards, computer monitors clatter and smash to the floor around us, as the lights suddenly went out. The room shakes once more as the facility fire alarms start blaring. The wailing of the shrill alarm echoes all throughout the facility as we laid on the debris-stricken floor, groaning and moaning in pain. Our radio screamed to life as a familiar voice blared through the speakers, vibrating from the intensity. Vulture 2-2 is at the station and in position. We have confirmation visuals of flames in the rig. Get your asses out of here before this place blows up. The scientist groaned as the rig worker stumbled to his feet, holding onto the control panel before he lost balance and fell backwards onto the floor. What's happening? He yelped as he tried to hoist himself back up. This dang thing is sinking, probably from Sarge's grenades. Anyways, we gotta go now. Corporal Jackson shouted over the wall of the alarm as he climbed back onto his feet, grabbing his rifle and speaking into the radio. Vulture 2-2, this is Whiskey 3. We're on our way out. On your feet, soldier. We are leaving. He yelled as he gripped my right hand, hoisting me up and in an instant, as he dashed through the door. I grabbed my rifle and helped the scientist up to her feet, as the construction worker stood up and followed suit after us through the doorway. Upon exiting the tower, we were greeted with the sight and smell of what I could only describe as total anarchy. The metal catwalk bridges overhead us slung dangerously to their sides, as huge, fiery flames licked every corner as far as I could see, through the clouds of smoke. Another smaller explosion resonated beside us from a distance, sending parts and fragments of the catwalk hurtling down onto us from above, as we covered and shooted our heads with our arms and hands. The lingering of dread still gripped me by my sides, as we ran through the thick black smoke, following Corporal Jackson as he led us to a splitting intersection in the catwalk. A distinct and muffled roar of a helicopter could be heard above these sounds of chaos. This way. Go, go. Keep moving. He called out while dodging the fires as the massive derrick crane of the oil rig groaned loudly under stress, tilting inwards and coming crashing down onto the control tower that we had been in earlier. Had we not left it earlier, we might have been squashed like bugs. 
The impact of its crash came with the result of the platform tilting, even dangerously to one side, as we were once again thrown off our feet, this time thankfully holding onto the catwalk handrail. How far is the helicopter? The worker shouted in frustration as he ran in front of me, mouth and nose covered with his arm to prevent inhalation. We're almost there. Move, move. Corporal Jackson shouted angrily as the whirring of the helicopter rotor blades came into focus. The smoke parted as I could see the military helicopter in all of its magnificent glory, hovering just over by the edge of the platform. Doors slung wide open as the pilot directed the bird closer to the edge, its sides scraping against the paint of the catwalk. Get to the chopper! The radio screamed as we ran towards the helicopter, with Corporal Jackson being the first on board, followed by the geneticist and the worker. I was about to board the helicopter when I was suddenly thrown backwards with the catwalk breaking apart and bending into two. As the massive rig tilted into an angle which I was now meters away from the helicopter, as the pilot desperately tried to hold it together and stabilize. Come on, jump for it! Corporal Jackson shouted over the terrified screams of the scientist as the helicopter hovered unsteadily, the distance between me and the helicopter increasing by the second. I took a deep breath as I readied myself and sprinted to the edge of the catwalk before leaping with all of my might. I fell flat on my chest onto the helicopter floor, my gun clattering to the side as I began slipping on the wet surface of the metal and slid backwards to the edge of the helicopter, my whole body dangling from the edge. But right before I was about to fall off, a firm, gloved hand gripped my arm tightly as Corporal Jackson pulled me back on board. I gotcha, he said as he hoisted me back up from the edge of the helicopter door the background rain pelting against my suit. We're all on board. Go. Copy that. Vulture to base. The asset has been secured. Returning back to base. Out. The co-pilot announced our departure as the helicopter flew away from the rig, leaving behind the stricken oil rig as it commenced its final explosion in the last few seconds sending out a blinding bright light and massive mushroom-shaped cloud and rubble as it broke away, slowly sinking into the stormy ocean. It has been 18 years since the government dismissed the offshore disaster as a freak accident, covering up the whole story as just a drilling system going awry on board. I left the CDC and my whole life behind for good, given the NDA slip that has kept my mouth shut and prohibited me from even hinting at the existence of the story. My contract has already ended four days ago, and I have been debating whether to reveal the story or not from there ever since. Some things in the world are just not meant to be discovered, and we should just remain blissfully unaware of the hidden dangers that lurk in our very planet. I just hope in my heart that the poor souls on board the rig during that fateful night rest in peace, alongside with Sergeant Folkers, Specialist Maxian, and Corporal Staples. That is all that I have for you. And whatever you do, please, please don't go searching for Watchtower 1. I found myself in the woods behind my house. Written by Weird Bryce Guy.
Since it will become obvious soon enough as I recount my experience, I'll go ahead and admit that I had gone to the woods to end myself. Sometime earlier, well before my inspiration to do it, I had heard that some animals will slink away from their dwelling or packs to be alone during their final moments. I suppose that this fact, true or not, had compelled me to also leave my home, venture into the woods, and take my own life. The actual reason behind my desire to die is irrelevant, and it would take too much time to explain anyway. It's no longer present within my heart and I want only to live peacefully for as long as nature and God would allow. The reason for this change of heart and the experience which I've decided to share is very terrible. If you aren't someone who can tolerate grimness, I suggest that you stop listening here. Perhaps go read or watch something lighthearted. But if you're interested in the story that I have to tell, and if you can steel yourself against the dreadful and macabre, by all means, get comfortable and listen on. As I mentioned, I wanted to die, and I decided that the best place to carry out the deed was in the heart of the woods behind my house, which is densely vegetated, being ignored and untended by both the inhabitants of the neighborhood and those who service it. I figured that I could not only commit the act there, but that my body would also be left undiscovered for quite some time, if ever. There were no real paths that led through it, and the uneven and weed-choked terrain prevented it from being a reasonable shortcut through the neighborhood. During the summer, it was a den of ticks, snakes, and other things that you wouldn't want to come across. A perfect place to be uninterrupted while I did the deed. After several minutes of bushwhacking, although I avoided making my route too clear, I came to a spot where I could see myself comfortably coming to an end. It wasn't really a clearing, but the undergrowth was lower here, bowed beneath a tree. I couldn't begin to tell you the species, and the enclosing foliage was not as unappealing in appearance as others I had passed. I wouldn't call it tranquil. It was still ugly and wild, but it was the best I figured I would find. I had brought a knife with me, preferring something silent, even though I did own guns. I had no one to say goodbye to, 
and was mortally determined to carry out the act. So, without any sort of a preamble, I sat against the tree and brought the blade across my throat. I won't go into detail about the sensation. It unsettles me still. But I will say that I had thought to bring a gun. I would have hastened my death, regardless of who would have heard the shot. As I sat against the trunk of the tree, my throat leaking like a fountain, I noticed the flowers and leaves about me seemed to lean towards my body. Vines sprang from the ground, as animate as snakes, and curled themselves around my ankles. I heard the groaning of branches overhead, and saw their shadows move oddly on the ground as they strained downward. The sun was setting, and the shadows were almost monstrous in appearance. Everything about me, everything natural, seemed intent on reaching me, on making contact with my body. But not just with my body, with my blood. Petals scooped up the droplets and rivulets that rolled down my shirt. A fallen leaf, severed with intent, no doubt, gracefully fell from the tree and onto my head, was then windswept down to my neck, and wrapped itself around my throat with apparent sentience, sealing the wound, drinking from it. I was the fountain for some sylvan thirst, and while I should have been terrified by the unnatural animation of plant life, something about it seemed more hospitable than parasitic. I did not feel drained, despite having the sensation that something was being taken from me. There was no lightheadedness, nor bodily fatigue. The pain in my neck soon ebbed away, and I was left only with a tickling feeling as the leaf hungrily pulsated over my wound. Turning to my right, I saw that the knife I had used was almost completely buried in the grass, and upon pulling it out, I saw that the blade was cleaned of the blood which had coated it just moments before. The blades of grass that had touched it rocked back and forth, as if swaying drunkenly. Just when the activity started to become too eerie to handle, and actual fear threatened to break the odd tranquility, the various appendages of nature receded, and I was again left untouched. I rose and looked around, but saw nothing which would have given any indication that nature had assumed an almost predatory state. I examined myself and noted no punctures or wounds, which would have been evidence of the vampiric action 
I had witnessed and felt. I was confused, and while the desire for death hadn't yet left me, curiosity had taken a momentary hold of my mind, and I wanted to learn about the phenomenon, if it had actually happened, before fully committing myself to the soil. The desire to know, regardless of the information sought, always seemed more powerful than any other conflicting impulse. I was about to make my way out of the woods and return home when I saw someone standing not far ahead. In the diminishing sunlight, I could still discern more than their physical form, and I saw that they were totally naked. But the experience of just moments before, the dying light, and any other effects on my mind and perception rendered me incapable of seeing or maybe accepting their face. I had unintentionally gone towards them, and upon coming within a few feet of the spot at which they stood, finally saw their identity. It was my face, and when I closely looked over the rest of them, my body as well. This copy turned to me, smiled, and did a dual arm gesture, indicating the spread of woods around us. For some reason, I couldn't tell. He, it, didn't speak, but continued smiling as if waiting for me to come to some revelation regarding his presence. I looked around, but saw nothing that I hadn't seen before. And then the copy pointed to me, and then to itself, as if to confirm that it was indeed a simulcrum. I opened my mouth to ask a question, but when trying to project my voice, I felt a sensation compared to a hiccup or a soft burp, and no sound exited my throat. I tried again, with no greater success. For some reason, I couldn't speak. The copy smiled sympathetically, and then came towards me. Before I could act, Offensively or defensively, I doubt at that moment I would have been able to think of the appropriate action. It seized my wrist and removed the knife that I had still held in my hand. Taking the knife and still smiling, it quickly slid open my belly and stepped away. There was no pain, there was not even blood. Dumbfounded, I watched as leaves fell from my stomach, in place of bowels. A semi-transparent fluid trickled out, like the icor of some thick vine, but nothing resembling human viscera came out. I was horrified. I would much rather have preferred to see blood-soaked innards slip from my gash in my gut than the stuff of plants. 
I looked up to the copy, and despite my wound, violently recoiled, almost falling backwards at seeing its latest expression. I wanted to use words such as satanic, abominable, wicked, but I feel none of these accurately relate the evilness of that face. To see myself in that detestable way, it would later prevent me from ever looking into a mirror again. Without speaking, the copy mimicked the violence that it had done to me on itself. It brought the blade across its belly, but instead of leaves and plant fluid, blood and the glistening surfaces of intestines peeked through the wound. It let them burst outward for a moment, as if to let me really see and accept its body contents, and then it put its hand to the wound. Upon taking it away, the wound was sealed, the abdominal contents back in place. Terror overtook me. During its presentation, I had put together the facts of the situation and realized that some sort of exchange had been made between the plant life and myself. My blood had been extracted and used to create some ghastly facsimile. In return, I had been given a body of leaves and some water-like substance. Evidently, nature had discerned my desire for death, but decided that it would send forth its own version of me for some sort of unnatural purpose. What I was meant to do in my plant-like state, I never found out. The next moments happened so fast, and I can barely recall them now with clarity as I sit at my desk. I remember an anger rising in me, an indignation at nature's gall. Sure, I had come to its domain to die, but it had no right to copy me, to continue the identity I was determined to end, even if I wouldn't have to suffer through it. Having this sudden fury, I remember lunging at the copy, tackling it to the ground, somehow snatching up the knife. I was sure that it would be stronger, and stabbing it over and over again. And then in a moment of what I can only describe as madness, I drank from its various wounds, really sucking up the blood that spilled out. Leaving the knife sheathed in its own heart, I sank my hands into the blood pulling around its body, and I smeared it all over myself. I scooped up some of the viscera which had been exposed to the open air, and shoved it inside my still open gut. It was gruesome, morbid, but in the moment, it felt absolutely necessary. I returned home later that night, feeling in a word refreshed. That was a week ago. I want to be prideful and say that I've beaten nature that even at his most vulnerable, man can still triumph against the Earth's most invasive agents. But yesterday, while letting my dog out to do its business, I swear that I saw something lurking just beyond the tree line of the woods that border my home. 
something that looked nude, stooped, and weak, but bearing the unmistakable figure of a human being. I think that sooner than later, I should make another trip into those woods and put an end to myself once and for all. The Screams From Below Written by Kyle Harrison My brother Marcus was already gone before I came to Odessa. He was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer just six months ago, making him a walking corpse. When he got the news, it changed him. He started to do crazier and crazier things, just to get the thrill. His latest idea of living on the edge was urban exploration, and that brought him all the way to the edge of the eastern world. The news of his whereabouts came to me via an email from a small business just outside the main downtown shopping area, Ozden Tours. Written entirely in Russian, the short message told me only that I could come and retrieve his body if I so wished. But when I met the owner, he told me that it wouldn't be a simple matter. Your brother was a brave man. He wanted to walk the path of hell itself, he said, shaking his head sadly. As I soon discovered, Marcus had chosen to go explore the underground tunnels of Odessa and do so without a guide. He insisted, claiming that he was trying to capture a glimpse of the chaos that this place offers. The manager explained. He felt so guilty that he insisted I should take the money Marcus had paid him. After the fourth day, and he did not return, I felt the only choice would be to call his next of kin. It's not the first time that this has happened. The labyrinth entices many foolhardy people into its maw. I often warn them that the place is not to be disturbed, and insist that I accompany them. But they do not listen, he admitted, shaking his head sadly. I gave him an inscrutable smirk, thinking that this was part of the scam that he ran. Offering an unsupervised tour into the hearts of the Ukrainian city, and he would turn a blind eye for just a few extra dollars. Had Marcus not been American or had wealthy contacts, I doubted that he would have called me at all. How often, I wondered, did he simply send aspiring young men and women to their death, all for the allure of uncovering hidden secrets beneath the earth? I'm not leaving until I collect his corpse, I told him. And then he gave me the same warning I was sure he could recite verbatim. The tunnels are expansive. Some say there are over a thousand access points across the city. It is a city under the city. An entire network of caves, tunnels, and complete darkness. And how much of the place do you know? The city laws allow me only to navigate the first level. Perhaps only 5% of the tunnels that weave their way throughout Odessa, he admitted I was sure that he had expected I would simply take the money and leave, but Marcus deserved better. So instead, I asked him to take me to the point of no return. 
It wasn't long before, there was little to see in front of us, save for the dim lighting of the headgear he gave me. Why would anyone want to come here? I whispered as we descended. The caves were claustrophobic already, and we were hardly a hundred feet below the surface. I thought as we turned a corner and the space became even more confined. With each step, the outside world forgotten and a new nightmare born. There is a lot of history here. During the war, some soldiers were here for six months. Can you even imagine being locked away with no lighter sense of time for that long? The maze can play tricks in your mind, the guy told me, his voice echoing as I saw some of the weird and disturbing graffiti on the walls. Pictures of devils and mutilated bodies hastily scrawled by pranksters, and other logs made by half-sane men that likely used what little tools they had to etch out a living day by day. To go down here in the midst of nothingness took a certain amount of bravery and stupidity, I knew. This is far as I can go. The guide told me as we had reached another flight of stairs. I couldn't even see the first step below my feet. The darkness was so incapacitating. Well, you're going to have to break the rules today. I'm not going to wind up another corpse for you to scare your guests about. I told him grabbing his arm and pushing him down. Now hold on just a minute. Let's be reasonable men about this. Weren't you listening to a thing that I said? That this place is impossible to search every nook and cranny. Some say that only 80% of the tunnels have even been registered. It would doom us both to go any further. He said nervously. I revealed the pistol from my coat and motioned him to start the descent. I'll only use it if you try to run, I told him. Marcus deserved a better final resting place, I told myself, as we went to the next level. Slowly, we began to search the catacombs. Neither of us spoke as we surveyed the hollow tunnels. It was easy to see why anyone would believe this place was haunted. Not even rats were scurrying across the floor. This is a bad idea. We will soon lose track of which way we came, the guide warned. Hold this, I told him as I took my jacket off. I had come prepared for this with a few torches that were small enough to fit to my pocket, so I laid one down next to the last corner as we crouched down and entered what looked like a military bunker. Scrawling digits covered the walls, a tapestry of sanity being broken as these men struggled to find a reason to keep going. My headlight caught a glimpse of something in the far corner, and I found myself a bit disturbed by it. It looked like a full-sized model of one of the soldiers, dressed in protective gear for the long months in the hazardous tunnels, gas mask and all. I thought you said that you didn't bring people down here, I told the guide, showing him the doll. Well, how do you explain this? He mumbled an apology in Russian and said, there are things about this place I can't understand, sir. We truly should not be here. Your brother is dead. Please, just accept that, he told me. But I wasn't satisfied, and I had to keep going deeper. He was hiding something. The tunnels were holding back some vital truth, and it would take just another few levels for me to find it. 
He became quiet as we had reached the next level. The oxygen apparently thinned here as we carefully searched the corridors. I was down to my last torch already. From here on out, only my senses would be able to guide me. I decided to keep my hands to the wall, mentally counting my steps as I kept the guide within an arm's length, and my weapon raised in case he decided to give me the slip. After a few minutes of walking in the pitch black, he tried again to convince me to turn back. We could be going in circles. There isn't no way to tell. May I recommend that we get an entire crew here first thing in the morning? Many men can make light work of this labyrinth, he told me. His voice was cracking. He was terrified to go further. I waved the gun for him to move on, convinced that meant the truth was close. But I dared not keep my eyes away from him as we rounded another corner. As a torch that I had laid down was just about to go out, I ran to it, trying desperately to keep the light going. There isn't much air down here, so it shouldn't surprise you. You're in a hellscape, just turn back please. Clearly, we can't expect to find your brother, the guide pleaded. The torch was definitely an indication we were going in circles, but I didn't want to be deterred because of a simple loss of direction. If the roles were reversed, I knew Marcus would do anything to find me. You sound so convinced that he's dead, but you don't know my brother like I do. He might be lost, but I won't accept that he's gone until I see the body myself, I said. It was a lie, but it was enough to get the guy to be quiet for now, as we pushed through to the next corridor. I wanted to try to retrace my steps and find a different path, but everyone that we came across seemed to lead to a whole new set of winding tunnels. It seemed pointless to talk now, as we routed corner after corner, lost in the dark that couldn't be escaped. And then we came to the bunker again, and I sat down on one of the cots, feeling dizzy and a bit lightheaded. The guide was going completely pale, and at first, I didn't understand why. And then I turned to the corner where the life-sized model of the soldier with the gas mask had been sitting, and realized that it was missing. What the hell? I whispered, shining a light toward the next corridor. And then I saw something move in the dark, a silhouette on the edge of my vision. It was the soldier standing there in front of me maybe only 10 meters away, the reflective surface of his gas mask showing me that he was moving toward me at an alarming pace. I froze, my brain trying to catch up with my body as I realized this was a living person coming toward me. Immediately, I shouted to the guide to move, but it was too late. The soldier was on him in less than a second, strangling him to the ground as I backed away. My only thought was to run. I didn't know where I could go, but I stumbled amid the tunnels and tried to think quickly of which way was the path out of this darkness. Behind me, I kept hearing the guide scream. And then the tunnels went silent and I realized I had hit a dead end. It also meant that my guide was likely dead. I still had the gun in hand, and I could hear the soldier moving about trying to find me but it was impossible to see a thing. I hugged the wall again, realizing that if I couldn't see my attacker, that meant they also couldn't see me.
I stayed completely still, listening to the darkness, thinking I was waiting to die. I could hear nothing at first, and then breathing from within their mask. They were right in front of me. Could they sense me? I wasn't sure. I kept still for a moment until I actually felt their body against me. I reacted on instinct and pushed them down, running back the way that I had come to the bunker. The guide was dead on the ground, his eyes bulged out and his tongue cut off, to stop the sound of his screaming. I grabbed his phone and used it as an extra source of light to find my way toward the next corridor. It was another dead end. My mind was panicking. No wonder so many came down here to end it all. There wasn't an exit. Turning back, I saw these soldiers standing at the end of the corridor, just gazing at me, perhaps trying to decide if I was worth dealing with. There seemed to be an air of familiarity to the way that he stood. And then it hit me. You came here not to die, but to hide, I told him. The soldier took a step forward. Well then, you've got your wish. Let me go. Let me get out of here alive and I won't tell anyone, I said. Another step and they were showing their weapon of choice. A curved, serrated blade. No one has to know. As far as the world is concerned, you are dead. It can stay that way and you can just keep doing whatever it is you're doing down here. I can make up a story. Tell them that there is a cave-in or something. I begged. Or just that you got mugged. It doesn't have to be this way. He was standing only a few meters away now. The blade probably inches from stabbing into my chest. I know you have nothing to lose, but please. I still have a family. I still want to keep going. I sobbed. The soldier held up a finger to his mask. And then he took a step aside and gestured for me to leave. I hesitated for a second trying to understand what might be going through his head. Why had he chosen any of this? But I didn't dare question the chance to escape. I left him there in the darkness, stumbling to find an escape. It felt like hours before I could really even get a sense of location. We only saw each other once more when I heard the sound of bones breaking, and I realized that he was feasting on the guide's carcass. His back turned to me, as he hunched over the corpse like a wild animal. I don't even know if he recognized that I was watching. Instead, I left those tunnels behind and spent the next ten hours trying to find a way out, my breathing ragged and heavy, my body sore and hardly able to move. Eventually, I did make an exit, managing to crawl through a drainage pipe to the southern part of Odessa. I smelled rank and likely looked like I hadn't slept for days, but at least I was free with my life. I traveled back to the estates the next day and did exactly what I told them I would do. The beneficiaries accepted my story and read Marcus's will a week later. Standing there listening to them divide what money he had left like it was a lot was sickening, and some part of me understood his need to get away from society to hide in the unknown and never be seen again. I'd tell myself he was gone now, 
that no sane person could live that long in those conditions under the city. But sometimes, I have to go back there, walking these streets of Odessa, and I hear the screams and I know, my brother is still below. The zippers on people's skin are becoming undone. Written by Peace Sim Look, Olivia, you know Mr. Jacobson wants this first thing in the morning. Which is why you shouldn't have waited until the end of the day today to get started on your portion of the spreadsheet. My side, I already knew where this was going. I know, said Andrew, but I need this evening off. It's Michael's fourth birthday. I just can't miss the celebration. You'll understand when you have kids. I'll make this up to you. You already owe me, I said. This makes two favors. Heck, I should just take a few days off at this point and leave you to do my job for me. So, you'll cover for me tonight, said Andrew with relief. Thank you so much. And by the way, is everything okay at your place? I'm hearing a lot of racket. Yeah, don't worry, everything's just fine. What about you? You've got something funny on your neck. Huh? He responded, oblivious to the metal speck I noticed under his chin. Never mind, I said. It wasn't my problem, and I had work to do. I ended the Zoom call and removed my headphones. Leaning back in my seat, I reflected on the evening ahead. I had at least three more hours of work thanks to Andrew flaking out, and I knew better than to even ask my supervisor and team leader, Mr. Jacobson, for overtime. And to make matters worse, my roommates, May and Gerald, were having a loud enough argument for my coworker to hear it through my computer. I decided to break for dinner before resuming the tedious monthly budget analysis. I opened the door from my bedroom to the cramped kitchen shared by the three of us. Gerald was already inside. I said hello, only to notice the bulging suitcase he was dragging to the entrance. Oh, I muttered, a bit startled. Yeah, said Gerald. He stepped up to me and gave me a polite hug. Hopefully it'll get a bit quieter around here for you. I hadn't realized that things between him and May had reached a breaking point. May and I had been close once. I guess this is what happens when your job sucks away all of your energy. You lose touch with people you care about, even when they're among the only ones you ever see in person. I helped Gerald carry some of his belongings to his car. As we hauled a box of clothes down the short staircase that led to our kitchen, I noticed a small piece of metal sticking out of his arm. Is your arm okay? I asked him as we lowered the box into his trunk. Yeah, why wouldn't it be? I took a closer look at it. It was a zipper. But why would a zipper be attached to his arm? He looked at his arm and, seemingly finding nothing unusual, resumed loading his vehicle. He lifted a toolkit that was slightly ajar and found a more appropriate place for it. As he did so, his arm muscles clenched, causing the zipper to shift a half inch down. A thin trail of blood leaped out from the gap that emerged. I gasped. 
Gerald, somehow still oblivious, gave me a perplexed look before turning back to the door. To the half-house, the three of us, well, maybe the two of us rented. May stood there, her face red and tearful. See you around, May, said Gerald. Good luck. She waved faintly. I went over to comfort her. Gerald could deal with the bizarre cut in his arm on his own. May needed my company that night. I hated telling her that I had to get back to work. As grating as my job was, it would be disastrous if I were to lose it. I worked past midnight. My wary eyes glazed past the terms that always floated around the description of projects ongoing at my company. Words like bioelectronic, transfection, and elytrotransmission, and towards the numbers that form the basis of my job. Finally, I submitted the complete report at 1.15 a.m. I fought to open my eyes the next morning. Mr. Jacobson didn't respond to my daily morning check-in email. The next time that I heard from him was that afternoon, when he had sent a message to our whole team, with a higher-up manager CC'd. Hey, thank you, Andrew, for the excellent work as always. My name wasn't mentioned. After work, I finally touched base with May, who had just finished a virtual tutoring gig. I just realized things with Gerald weren't going to get any better, she told me. So, instead of dodging all the issues like we always do, I insisted that we talk it out last night. It got pretty heated as you heard, but he eventually decided to leave. He's moving in with his brother in Eastside for the time being. I told her that I was sorry, both because of what had happened and because I hadn't been there for her as her relationship had fallen apart. I don't blame you, said May. Honestly, I think we both knew things had run their course between us a while ago, but we didn't want to have to deal with one of us moving out during the pandemic. But we could only put off dealing with... Hey, did you cut yourself? I interrupted, noting a drop of blood running down her cheek. What? No, I don't think so. Just turn your head to the right and stay still, I instructed. Behind her left ear, a metal zipper lingered on the surface of her skin, just beneath her hairline. What the hell is that? What's what? Asked May, understandably worried. The zipper was embedded into her skin. It appeared to have dropped from its starting point by a fraction of an inch, undoing her skin as it went. A small quantity of blood dripped out of the gap it left behind. I dabbed the blood with a tissue, applied an antibiotic cream, and pulled the zipper back up, where it appeared to stay relatively secure. Before I could get a bandage, May had rushed to the bathroom mirror to see it for herself. Her reaction left me even more befuddled than before. I'm telling you, it was right there, I said. I saw it and I touched it. But she was right. There was no zipper to be found. Olivia, look, there's obviously nothing there, said May. Are you okay? I mean, it wouldn't make sense for there to be a zipper on me in the first place, and it's not like I felt one. I just don't understand, I said. I'm sure that I saw it. Same with Gerald and Andrew, too. 
It was her turn to be confused when I showed her the drops of blood on the tissue that I had used. Neither of us knew what to make of it. The best answer for what happened that we could come up with was that May had accidentally scratched herself without realizing it, and that I had been mistaken about what I had seen. But it wasn't a satisfying explanation. I began to notice zippers on my coworkers during our daily video calls. Kelly had one that drooped awkwardly from her right cheek. Andrews dangled lower and lower on his neck. Yet, he never seemed to notice even as blood started to leak out of it. I tried alerting him again, but he and everyone else on the call acted hostile in response. He looks fine to me, said Mr. Jacobson. Get it together, Olivia. Work droned on. I quickly lost interest in intervening to protect my virtual colleagues. I had myself to look after. The friendship between May and I benefited from Gerald's departure. We watched movies and sat around a record player listening to music. One Friday night, we even repeated something May had liked doing during college. A ghost story themed sleepover party. It was just the two of us, but with the assistance of a couple mixed drinks, we had a nice enough time as she narrated a handful of tales to me. I awoke Saturday morning in a sleeping bag on the floor of May's room. A liquid dripped against my cheek. I shot awake, worried about a water leak. But instead, I found the source to be the head of my slumbering friend, which lay partially over the edge of her bed frame. The zipper had reappeared. It had drifted downwards and red droplets again trickled out of the opening. Moving carefully, I gripped the metal and pulled it back up. May didn't stir as I wiped away the blood. I left to clean my own face. When I returned, I noticed that May's zipper had again disappeared. I didn't know what to believe. May would think I was crazy if I brought the zippers up again. But if I were just imagining things, where did the blood come from? I told May the next day that I had been seeing these zippers again, though I didn't mention hers in particular. Olivia, she told me firmly, there are no metal zippers on me or any of your other coworkers. That's impossible and you know that. But, but the blood. May shrugged. Like we said, I must have cut myself by accident. That's the only possibility, right? I told her I agreed. Until I could make some sense of what I was seeing, I decided not to bring it up again. That Monday morning, Andrew confided in me that his mother was in the hospital. She's on a ventilator. He sent me via chat. It's hard for me to focus knowing her life was on the line. I sent him some supportive messages and offered to cover for him again. During our next daily team call, Andrew's video at first refused to load. It finally appeared while Mr. Jacobson was lecturing us about a new procedure for logging complaints of in-house contagions and pre-pandemic experimental exposure. Andrew's decrepit appearance shocked me. Beneath the eyes he fought to keep open, a long, red gash extended down his neck. His zipper had dropped to somewhere on his chest. Blood oozed out and soaked through his stained blue shirt. Slowly, his head lowered. He teetered and then fell to the floor. Jeez, Andrew, are you okay?
I asked. Excuse me, Olivia, said Mr. Jacobson. I'm talking now. Did no one else just see that? Someone needs to get an ambulance sent to Andrew's house now. As I spoke, Andrew's video cut off. No, I'm fine, said Andrew in a hollow, weary voice. I don't know what Olivia's making a fuss about. Please carry on, Mr. Jacobson. Mr. Jacobson glared for a moment, presumably at me, before continuing. The next day, I learned from an email that Andrew was taken an indefinite leave of absence due to undisclosed medical reasons. May found fewer gigs over the next few weeks. At my insistence, she reluctantly agreed to let me cover her portion of the rent until she found a stable employment. The long hours of joblessness started to wear on her. She would often get snappy or withdrawn. She probably had sent out a hundred job applications at this point without any offers. When she wasn't applying for jobs, she spent much of her time attending to her ever-growing collection of small cacti. I laughed when she had informed me that she had assigned a name and a personality to each of them. She called them Substitute Friends. Good night, Olivia. She told me late one evening. As she headed into her bedroom, I noticed the zipper and that it had drifted an inch down her head. I waited for an hour before creeping as quietly as I could into her room. I opened the door carefully and stood there for several moments until I could discern her rhythmic breathing. I stepped over the carpet until I reached her bed, where she lay asleep. No blood had come out of the opening made by the zipper, not yet at least, perhaps not at all if I intervened. I reached carefully for her. I would have a lot of uncomfortable explaining to do if May awoke to find me there, but I felt compelled to act all the same. I gripped the zipper and slowly pulled it up. May started to reach for it as if to scratch an itch, but her arm drifted aside at the last moment. Finally, the zipper set in place at its starting point. I let go, tiptoed out of the room, and closed the door behind me. It became a regular ritual. When May had a rougher, restless day, the zipper would loosen and start to descend, and I would sneak into her room in the late night or early morning to discreetly return it. The next day, the zipper would always be gone. I noticed one on me too. It was on my back near my right shoulder blade. The longer that I worked, the further it dropped. Every morning and every evening, I tugged it back into place. The job kept me too busy to dwell much on the insanity of the whole situation. I had Andrew's work to worry about in addition to my own. Mr. Jacobson grilled me in front of the whole team the next morning. Olivia once again failed to account for recent market fluctuations in her weekly report. I, I'm sorry, I said, distracted by the crimson streak running down on Kelly's neck. It won't happen again. A call from Mr. Jacobson late that evening interrupted a board game May and I were playing. Yes, I said, figuring there must be some kind of emergency. Olivia, am I correct that you have been diligent in your social isolation? 
Yes, I said, surprised by the question. Good, said Mr. Jacobson. So have I. So, I'm assuming you have no objection to your up-and-coming performance review to be in person. What? Um, yeah, that's fine, of course, I said, ever acquiescent to my boss's demands. The call left me alarmed, though. Why would he insist on seeing me in person, after I had been working virtually for so long? I worried that he wanted to fire me, and I decided that it would be more polite to do so in person. I barely had time to settle down before I heard May shriek. While I had been on the phone, she had gone into her room. I arrived to find her hand clasped against her head, but behind her left ear. Had the zipper appeared, and had she finally noticed it? I should have listened to you and not put Shirley so high up, she said, referencing a cactus she had placed on her bookshelf. I had forgotten it was there and leaned in to get something. I think there's a thorn stuck in me now. I took a closer look. The zipper had, in fact, reappeared, and the thorn protruded through the loop in its pull tab into her skin. She reached to yank out the thorn. Stop, I called. You'll move the zipper. We were both silent for a moment. Did you say? Just let me get it out for you. I proceeded to pluck out the thorn. As I did so, I moved precisely enough to avoid touching the zipper, which then receded into her skin. May sat down with me afterwards. Why didn't you tell me that you were still seeing them? She asked. I... I took a deep breath. I thought you would think I was crazy. I would think and I do think that you need help, she said. How often have you been seeing them? Tears walled up in my eyes as I opened up and told her how I had seen them on everyone I had encountered lately. Including on me, she asked. I nodded. I've, I've adjusted yours before when it's gotten loose. I didn't give any more detail. I knew I had volunteered too much already. Okay, said May. She thought for a moment. We're going to get through this, Olivia. I used to see someone, a therapist, and maybe they can help you too. Soon, I had an appointment scheduled for next week. When it came time for my performance review, May had offered to drive me to the office. I resisted at first as I didn't want to trouble her unnecessarily, but she insisted that she was worried about my mental health and pointed out that she had nothing better to do that day. She watched from the car as I approached the office building. I had put on full business attire for the first time in months. When I reached the front door, I found it to be locked, and my keycard wouldn't open it. I called up Mr. Jacobson. Oh, I'm so sorry, Olivia, he said. I didn't specify the location, did I? I would happily meet you in the office, but corporate still has the whole floor shut down. We aren't allowed to step foot in there. I know it's unconventional, but I think we'll have to do this at my place. He read out his home address. He said what? Screamed May after I returned to the car. You didn't agree to it, did you? I know it's weird, I said, but I need this job. Olivia refused to go, said May, 
and file a complaint with HR. There's no good reason for him to invite you to his place for this. I know it's fishy, I said, but I need this to go well. If I tell him that I'm uncomfortable about it, who knows what he'll do in response. Olivia, I know what he's like and how this job is treating you. Sometimes you have to fight back, even when it's difficult. I don't want to be rude, May, but someone has to pay our rent. I can't lose this job, and I'm not going to risk starting a conflict with my boss over potentially nothing. May drove me there, but when we pulled up outside a split-level home, she insisted that she'd come inside if I was gone for very long. Mr. Jacobson ushered me in moments after I rang the doorbell. He led me to the living room. I took a seat on a dark blue couch and he closed the blinds. I appreciate you coming down here, he said as he took a seat across from me. Let's get started. I remained nervous about the content of the performance review, but he at least seemed intent on getting to business. Your performance has been problematic, I gulped. For now, I see no reason but to recommend to management that you be let go at the end of the quarter. As he spoke, I noticed a shiny object jostling at the top of the center of his forehead. It was barely visible behind his graying bangs. That is, unless you persuade me to send along a more positive assessment. I could even request that you be given a raise. Time slowed as I realized just how right May had been. I was such an idiot. Why had I come here? I should have listened to her. So, continued Mr. Jacobson, if you want to persuade me to do that, why don't you come upstairs with me? My wife's away. It's just the two of us. We can all come out of this as winners. My heart throbbed. I felt like I was suffocating. The right answer was to say no, obviously, and get the hell out. I had taken every insult he had given to me. I realized he had been testing and grooming me since I had started my job. He noticed that I wouldn't fight back, even when his criticism was unjustified. The constant humiliation had gotten me used to feeling helpless. Um, yeah, how about we go upstairs? I said. I decided to play the part he had written for me. I slowly followed him, painfully lifting my legs up each step until we arrived at a door to his bedroom. He followed me inside. You, your shirt, why don't you just go ahead and take that off, I said. He smiled wildly and unbuttoned it. I reached my hand steadily towards his face, as if to caress it. Only instead, I grabbed the zipper that was in the center of his forehead and pulled rapidly with all my might. The zipper traveled down his nose, jumped from the top of his mouth to the bottom, and then fell all the way to his waist. He gave a mystified expression. I waited in silence for a moment as he looked me over in confusion. Nothing seemed to be happening. May was right once again. I was crazy. There never were any zippers. What was I going to do now? And then, Mr. Jacobson gargled. All at once, his body opened up, 
His head split in two. Brains, mucus, saliva, and blood burst outwards. His chest followed. Organs and chunks of flesh spewed onto the floor. The lower half of his body and a hollow flap of skin that had once covered his torso collapsed into a grotesque heap. Another scream joined mine. I turned to find May at the door to his room. She had seen everything. We drove home in a shock silence. When we had pulled into our driveway, I told May that we needed to call the police and try to tell them what had happened. And then, an alert appeared on my phone. I had received an email from Mr. Jacobson. It was sent to my whole team. In it, Mr. Jacobson, or whoever was operating his email account, announced that he was taking indefinite leave due to a medical emergency. I read it out loud to May. Neither of us knew what to make of it. How could Mr. Jacobson have sent this, given what had just happened to him? If it was someone else using his account, then why would they be pretending to be him? My company soon hired a replacement for Mr. Jacobson. They're much better, more reasonable, fairer with uh, subordinates, and easier to get along with. A replacement for Andrew arrived two weeks later, and when we collaborate, our new boss gives both of us credit. My mental health has improved. I haven't seen a zipper on anyone since my boss's insides spilled out into his bedroom floor. It's been weeks since May and I talked about what had happened. She's been busy with a position she landed teaching at a local community college. She's seeing someone new now, and we both think that he's an improvement over Gerald. I've started growing a cactus of my own. It has an awkward, contorted shape, and it's somehow pricklier than any of May's. She insisted that I give it a name. I still check in with Mr. Jacobson every morning. I give him more water than he deserves, and I've yet to find a zipper on his rough, green skin. Did anyone else see the lights? The lights in the sky behind the storm. Written by Darkly Gathers. Did you see it? The source of the lights. You may have done if you've been driving along the highway at the same time as me. And by even writing this post, I feel as if I'm breaking some kind of spell or wordless promise. So forgive me for not disclosing the exact road. You'll know it, however, if you've driven it. It lies between two major cities, high up above a sea level, across states on the east coast. A glance through your car window went over the dusty rail grants you a view of the expanse of the plains below, of the cliffs, and of the long, low mountains in the far distance. It was dusk at the time of the incident. The sun was low and red in the sky, just above the horizon, and just below the slow, dark cloud that encompassed all the rest of it. My radio was playing, but I do not remember the song. It crackled with occasional static. My window was open. The air was warm and thick with the warning of an impending storm. And despite the gray-black sky, 
the angle of the sun allowed a final breath of red-gold light across the world around. Ned blanketed the mountains and the road. It sparkled in the edges of the cars in front. I was thinking about some dumb stuff as I tapped my finger against the wheel. A dentist appointment I had to reschedule. Whether I should try that new barber. Whether or not I'm truly happy with my girlfriend. I can see it all now. As if I'm still there. The traffic is slowing down right now. To my irritation, I'm forced to come down to 50, then to 40, and then to 30, and slower. I roll my tongue around my mouth and glance at the clock on the radio. I start to mentally adjust any time I'm likely to get back home. I try to work out what speeds I'll need to achieve if I want to meet my original time frame, more or less. The brake lights of the car in front shine bright. I slow my vehicle down even further. I drive a manual. I was in third and now I'm barely crawling. I'll have to bring it down in a second. Come on. What the heck's the matter here? I mutter to myself. I think in a study I read about cars slowing down, even momentarily, to get a good look at something morbid, like a road accident and the knock-on effect of such leading to massive, sprawling traffic jams as all the cars behind have to slow down and turn. Thunder crackles in the distance. The radio stutters and then cuts out. The music is replaced by white noise. Static. And the traffic slows to a complete stop. I put the car into neutral and bring up the handbrake with a sigh slumping back in my chair and tapping the wheel impatiently. I look out over the plains below. The red-gold sparkle has begun to fade. This is the end of the day, I realize. The sun is about to set. It's setting now to be more accurate. I turn in my chair to look behind me, squinting as I watch the sun disappear behind the rolling hills and mountains. The slither of sky, too, is also quickly lost to the encroaching gray-black clouds. I faced forwards again. I tap the wheel. Tap, tap, tap. The engine of the car is soft. Quiet. And behind it, I hear a rumbling. At first, I mistake it for thunder, but it's too quiet for that. Too quiet and it lasts for too long. It shivers down the faraway mountains and across the plains, up and over the highway, suspended as it is above the world below, and it keeps coming. The air starts to thicken, or at least that's what it seems to be doing to me. I find it a little harder to breathe. I become conscious on my chest, rising and falling. Clouds begin to shift and swirl at the edge of the windscreen. But, only at the edge, the rest of the sky remains relatively still. I stare, and that's when I see the lights, over to the left, bluish and flickering in the sky through the darkness in irregular patterns. I stare some more and then shoot a quick glance ahead. The traffic is dead. There is no movement at all of any kind. 
so I unbuckle my seatbelt and step out of my car and into the road. Craning my neck to look up into the rumble of the approaching storm, I am met with a breeze of warm air against my skin. The lights do not encompass the entire sky, but they cover more or less my entire field of vision from my current position. From the tips of the distant mountains to the stratosphere above, the lights flash through the clouds. Am I going crazy here? Can anyone else see this madness? It seems as if they can, as others begin to leave their vehicles too. A man gets out of the car right beside mine and mutters something under his breath, but I do not hear what he says. Some dark blur is caught in the flash of the lights, a twisted shape behind the clouds drifting through the sky. I realize that the lights are connected to something, to my sudden and despairing panic. I see the silhouette of some monstrous thing shift subtly into focus through the dark. The rumble warbles. It's a call. I now understand. But a call to what or to whom, I could not say. The lights flash. They flash and they shift in the sky. They are linked via a series of flowing foreign limbs and tendrils. I can only just make out the edges, the rough shapes before they are lost. But they are colossal. So staggeringly, cataclysmically massive. It should not be possible for such a thing to exist. It makes no rational sense. And yet, I see it above me. Obscured through the cloud and storm haze. But above me, nonetheless. The on terror that courses through me keeps me rooted firmly in place. I should not be seeing this thing, I understand. I should not be looking up upon this thing in the sky. I have broken a rule. We all have. And I understand at once that everyone around me feels the exact same. No one speaks. No one raises their phone to record or to take pictures. No one has shared a bewildered look with their neighbor, a plea for confirmation that what they are seeing is real. Because if anyone were to do such a thing, the spell would be broken. The tentative and terrifyingly fragile veil that keeps us safe would be torn. And we would, as a collective, be forced to reckon with this nightmare in the sky and its myriad of flashing lights. A streak of silent lightning across the sky grants me the briefest but clearest look so far at the anomaly. Only a fraction of a second is allowed, but it is enough. It reveals to me and to these spectators on the highway a glimpse of an entity surrounded by flowing and slowly churning limbs. At its rough center is a being made of black, clock-like hide, like the skin of a rhino, only darker. Pulled and stretched into a form that resembles the mechanisms of a sick and corrupted clock. An ancient and handless pocket watch, steadily, hungrily counting down the minutes. And it is covered in those shimmering blue lights, each with a halo of ice that hints at the depth of the creature's layers. For it is a creature I have accepted. It is alive. Perhaps not in any kind of way that I can appreciate, but alive nonetheless. 
The man beside me stirs. Please, I will him, turning to stare right into his eyes, wide and white. Do not mention this monster in the sky. Do not make it real by acknowledging its presence. Do not even gesture to it. We share this moment, stranger. We share it for the worse. Just allow it by. Allow the moment to pass. He wipes a sheen of sweat from his forehead. He holds my gaze for a moment longer, and then he returns into his vehicle. All across the highway, the others do the same. They are in no trance. They are following no orders. They return into their cars of their own free will. Their eyes turn back to the road. And after a minute more, perhaps, I do the same. The traffic slowly resumes. I put my car into first, hands white against the wheel, and steadily judder into a drive. Ten miles per hour, and then twenty. The ethereal rumbling across the plains is hidden behind the trickle, and then the rush of rain on the windscreen. The lights are lost in the haze of the approaching city. And until this day, I never tell the soul. Even typing this out feels wrong, reader. Am I making a terrible mistake? I just don't know what else to do. It appears in my dreams. I am afraid of the sky. If anyone has advice, then please, let me know. I've recently moved to Montana from Madison, Wisconsin. I had been a cashier for the majority of my time moving. I had been pretty much traveling my whole life. I lived in Texas, Illinois, Nevada, Wisconsin, and now Montana. I found a decent home in Bozeman, which was a small town in the wilderness. I usually like to stay out of the more populated cities. I like the countryside better. Anyways, uh, let's get to the story. I had started a new job at the local brewery. I hadn't been working there long before. I already needed a break. I was lucky enough to have a day off, knowing not many people were on shift due to the virus. I had been working three weeks before my first break. I had the luckiness of being off for the up-and-coming weekend. Soon enough, a Saturday rolled around, and I decided to go hiking in the National Forest because it wasn't but about a 20-minute drive away from where I was. I woke up early Saturday morning and packed. I was ready to get going by 10 a.m. It was a colder day, so I had to dress in layers. I arrived around a little before 10.30, and I brought my backpack and tent. I decided I was going to stay overnight. I hiked the whole day until about 4, and since it was early December, it got darker a lot earlier. I set up my tent and I got a fire going. I had canned beans and canned carrots for dinner. It's not the most delicious meal, but it worked. I finally got to bed around 20 minutes after 7. My fire had gone out by the time and I was about asleep. 
until I had heard a pretty large branch breaking. I didn't think too much of it. I just thought it had been an older limb breaking off of a tree, considering the wind had been pretty heavy earlier that day. I had been asleep not too long before I heard heavy feet running about nine feet behind my tent. My eyes shot open and I sat up like I had just witnessed a murder. I grabbed my phone and the time read 9.14pm. I looked around in my backpack and I found my flashlight. I turned it on and I walked outside of my tent. I shined the dull orange color light into the forest around me. The light wasn't too much of a use. I walked on the path that I came from for not much more than four minutes, and then my flashlight went out. I hid on the light hoping it would turn back on, but of course it didn't. So I just decided to walk back up the path that I had walked on from. Then I got back up to the flat ground where my camping site was. I started to walk towards my tent when I saw it. My tent was ripped to shreds and so was my backpack and my supplies. I didn't know what it was, but I couldn't think. And then I heard the most ear-piercing shriek that sounded straight from hell. Actually, that's a little bit of an understatement. I didn't think, I just ran. I hadn't been running for long until I heard heavy footsteps behind me. Too quick to be on two legs or whatever it was. It had to be on all fours, maybe more. And then it just abruptly stopped. I kept running for maybe five to seven minutes, in fear for my life before I decided to stop. I felt like I was going to pass out. My hot breath burned against the cold air. I hardly had six seconds to catch my breath before I heard the ear-piercing shriek again. This time, it was above me. I looked up to see nothing but tall, bare trees, until my eyes spotted something towards the left of me in a large, branchy maple tree. I slowly turned and saw glowing eyes along with long, skinny, bent and twisted legs. Its legs had nothing but bone and blood. I froze in fear until the thing screeched at me and proceeded to jump towards me. I ducked down as the thing and slightly missed my head. Keep in mind, I'm 6'3". I ran into the pitch black as I heard heavy breathing, not even a foot behind me. I was positive I was going to die. I don't know what possessed me to do this, but I stupidly turned my head back and looked behind me. Just to meet the creature face to face. Its head was oddly human, but its eyes. Oh, its eyes. They were pitch black and droopy. Its mouth was dropped open like a scream mask, actually. Its whole face looked like one. It had no eyes, just sockets. And its mouth had no teeth, just a gaping black hole. I screamed and ran even faster. Faster than I ever had. I heard the creature's pace slow down to a stop. I was still jolting in the pitch black. I finally stopped and when I did, it was silent, almost peaceful, until I heard something that oddly sounded like wind. I could recognize that sound from anywhere. It was water. It sounded like a large body of water somewhere near me. I walked east for about 20 minutes where I came across a large waterfall 
running down into a somewhat clear river. I knew this river from anywhere. It was the famous, infamous Madison River, somewhat a part of the large Missouri River. I was thirsty, and I couldn't bear without water anymore. I crept down to the thin part of the river and gathered water in my bare, sweaty hands, and it tasted like no water before, although it was almost frozen over. And I looked up and saw the creature standing across the river from me. I could only see it because of its piercing, white, glowing eyes. Although it had no eyes when I had just seen it face to face not long ago. I got up and ran, slipping on the halfway frozen ground. I had turned around in the process of slipping to see the thing just walking towards me. I stupidly yelled, What do you want from me? It's gaping wide, a black hole of a mouth closed, not all the way. It halfway smiled at me. In a raspy, deep voice, the creature spoke to me. Why, hello, Daniel. Why must you disturb my peace at once? I replied in a squeaky voice. I... The creature walked up to me and laid one of its grisly hands on me out of its six and spoke again. I do not wish to harm you, but you must not harm me back. And then it just disappeared. It took me about two minutes to get out of the shock state that I was in. It didn't take me long to realize what it meant when it said to not harm it. It was Mother Nature. All along, everyone thought Mother Nature was a beauty. Well, I hate to say it, but it's not. It's not beautiful at all. Anyhow, I had found my way to the ranger station and they helped me get back to my car. I simply told them that I had gotten lost. It's been a week since then. I made a promise to myself to never return to Gallatin National Forest. I have my next flight booked to Nebraska.